We are talking about the Bible, and I just figured that was a good thing to do at church. Um, hopefully everybody's okay with that. Um, but we're doing it, and it's going to seem like a little bit of a digression, but it, it's really not because it does lump under the spiritual discipline of study. And which I was thinking was just going to be one week, um, now is at least four weeks just under that little subheading. Uh, but we're going to hopefully gain some encouragement, uh, gain some understanding. Maybe some of these things will be familiar. Some of it may seem uh, a little um, just educational. And you think, well, I, I need something that applies. Well, hopefully we'll mix that in with it as well, too. Because we're talking about spiritual disciplines. The big overarching theme is the grace of God. Uh, looked at many, many months ago, the grace of God, what it is. But then how do we put ourselves in a place to be changed by that grace? And that's where the spiritual disciplines come in. Those things that God has given us to either do or not do, uh, exercises to involve ourselves so that we can be changed by his grace. Not that the exercises themselves do it or gain us any merit with the Lord, but they are the things that put us before his presence, before his throne, so that grace can have its work. Because grace is the thing that, that works within us to accomplish anything uh, of eternal significance whatsoever. So we looked at the disciplines of abstinence, and now you'll see them. I think they're still listed in your notes. And we jumped la next, last week over to the spiritual disciplines of engagement, the practices which enable our disentangled souls uh, to participate in the life and activities of the kingdom of heaven. So you can see where we're going to go, and if it's going to take four weeks just to get past study, um, you, you know, you might retire and we still could be doing these. I have no idea, uh, but we'll just see where the Lord leads and, and how it goes. And, and last week, we looked at study and gave it the definition of study is engaging our minds with the objective word of God to take that order or what the scripture says into ourselves, enabling us to be in sync with reality in a way that is good for us and for others. Uh, that's our working definition of study. And then we put a new definition out there for the Bible, and there's a lot of different ones out there, but the Bible being the eternal, infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, and otherwise unknowable God, choosing to make himself known and personally knowable through the instrument of human language. And there's a couple words there listed that, that kind of go under the word Bible, and we'll look at a few of those today. And, and realizing that the Bible is unique. It is different than any other piece of literature out there because God is the one who breathed it out, who gave it to us, and he is the one, by the power of his Holy Spirit, that enables us to understand it for it to become something in our hearts and in our lives. And if, in truth, the Bible is what it claims to be, it is that that unknowable God making himself known and, and knowable. It's one thing to make yourself known. Um, there's a person in our congregation, whenever they walk into the Mancelona hardware store, they say, I'm here. Can anybody imagine anyone here that would be like that and do that? I'm here. The Bible is not just God saying, I'm here. It's you can know me. You can have a relationship with me. I can become your friend. That's enormous. To know that the scriptures are not just God saying, I'm here. It's you can be here with me. 
That is the amazing Word of God that we're talking about. That's why study of the Word of God is so uh, precious, so important, such an important discipline because it gives us that revelation from God that we would not have any other way. Um, it's a book of uniformity that has the same message throughout it. It's been written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And Hebrew is a very picturesque language where um, the Aramaic is more precise. And then Greek is the common language of the people of the day of Jesus Christ. Written in three languages over a period of 1,500 to 2,000 years with about 40-plus writers. Now, how easy is it to get 40 people to agree on anything? Now, like, like just for example, if I were to tell you this morning, I want you to break up into groups of two, and I want you to spread out in the church, but we'll stay in the building, spread out in the church, and I want you to write down the virtues of going fishing, okay? Just go out and do that. Now, some of you would be really good at, you know, like, okay, yeah, you'd have this whole list of 20. Some of you would just say, waste of time. You know, it's like, why would I go out and feed fish worms just for fun? Uh, you know, we wouldn't agree. And we were just in the same building, and we'd come back, and, and even if we were together comparing notes, you know, we'd be like, sorry, I don't agree with you. I just don't see it that way. Well, this is 40 people over a period, 1,500, 2,000 years, over three continents, different people of levels of education who have come together to put to write down the things that God has shown them, and they agree. There's one message, it's called the scarlet thread of redemption, that weaves through the whole Bible. It's there as one big book made of 66 individual books. Not only that, the Bible has a prophetic element about it. And Bob was very good this morning when I was mentioning that to him. He says, and not only is it prophetic, they came true. And I'm like, yeah, that's a good point. It's one thing to say this is going to happen. It's another thing to be able to look back and say it actually did happen. No other book that claims to be of a religious nature contains the prophetic element that the Bible has. It has those prophecies of, of hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus Christ fulfilled to the letter, so much so that it's caused skeptics to go to the Bible and try to make the dates that the Bible was written different so they happened after the event because if you go by the chronology of when it truly was said and it's true that requires something it might mean this is God's word and if it is God's word then I am somehow responsible to that God but if I can get the Bible pushed away then all of a sudden maybe I'm not responsible to him and that's a motive behind many people today so in the the truth and the nature of the Bible, we looked at a couple things that kind of made sense if it is in truth, the word of God given to us, and that it can be exclusive. It has every right to say, this is how it's supposed to be. This is the way that you do it. It is absolutely true. There is no other claim of man or idea that can come up against it because God is the one that gave the revelation. It's relevant for all times. It's not a book for 2,000 years ago for old-fashioned people. It is a book that is eternally relevant because an eternal God gave it so that we can be confident that its message is applicable to people of all time and that it has a life-transforming power about it. So as we talk about the Bible and the wonder of it, our culture then just madly embraces it, doesn't it? Not so. 
And as we look at where the Bible is in culture today, then we're going to kind of look at the reliability of the Bible this morning. We do live in a country, in a place, in a time, and even worldwide where the climate is not necessarily friendly to the claims of Scripture. Uh, and it's kind of interesting, the uniqueness of the Bible, how the Bible seems to stand even though culture is so anti-Bible at times. In fact, if you were just to pick a recent date, uh, back in 1998, um, they gave some statistics about the distribution of the Bible. And in the distribution of, or the writing of any book, if it becomes a bestseller and sells like 100,000 copies, we're convinced that, wow, that is a monumental work. And if it goes beyond that and it sells a million copies, we're like, wow, this is a tremendous piece of literature. This is awesome. And if a book were to sell 10 million copies in its lifetime, we would say that must be one of the great pieces of literature of all time. Well, in one year alone, all of the Bible societies together uh, in 1998 gave out 20.8 million whole copies of the scripture in one year. And beyond that, 20 million more New Testaments. And then beyond that, even pieces of scripture or pamphlets that contained the scripture were distributed throughout the whole world so that together there were 585 million portions of scripture distributed throughout the world. Now, if that doesn't strike you as unique, as wonderful, just picture for a moment if you were to be the one to distribute them all by yourself and you were going to pass them out, and you were going to give out one Bible every five seconds, you would be 92 before you finished. Isn't that fun to know? That's how many Bibles were given out or portions of Scripture. So in a world that seems anti-Bible, at the same time, the Bible itself is being distributed and being read and being understood by people all over the world. And that just testifies to the enduring quality of the Word of God. So that even when a portion of culture rails against it and rails against what it claims, the greater power of the word of God is still changing people, is still touching hearts, and is still going beyond the skepticism of the day as it has throughout its whole history. Even times of persecution where people would be killed and today even killed for having a Bible, the Bible still stands with power in the word in the world today. So as we think about the Bible and culture, some of us are old enough to remember something that Francis Schaeffer calls the Christian consensus. In some senses, we've never been a Christian nation that everyone has, the majority of people were Christians in the sense that we know it. But there was a time in our country where it, the garden, we can say, was friendly towards the Bible and to the claims of Christianity. You could have a conversation with somebody about the Bible and not necessarily have somebody say, well, you know what, that's full of doubts, it's full, it's full of uh, mistakes, and, and go through this whole distrust of the Bible. There was sort of an, an agreement that, that is the Bible, that is the Word of God, and I'm going back at least 50 years and, and longer than that, that, that you would have a discussion, and they may not agree with you, they may not believe it, and they may not do anything with it than have it on their shelves, but they would at least admire it and say, yeah, that's a Bible, that's God's word, and they might go and live their life the way they want it. But there was a consensus where you could have a conversation 
with somebody and the Bible kind of was agreed upon, you know, that's God's word, that's the Bible. You can trust it even though they weren't trusting it themselves. And he calls that the Christian consensus. Um, I was trained probably back in high school in a program called Evangelism Explosion. And basically what they did is taught you how to present your faith to somebody. And we would go out from door to door, and I'm sure they thought we were Jehovah's Witnesses, but we weren't. And, and we were going from door to door, and we would engage people in conversation and use a couple diagnostic questions to help uh, you know, start the conversation. And in doing that, we didn't really run into the kind of skepticism that you would today. And that program worked because of this idea that there was a general agreement about this thing called the Bible. But that whole program kind of had to reinvent itself because culture has changed so much that you really just couldn't go up to a door and engage people in conversation the same kind of way because there was so much skepticism, there was so much doubt. So back in the 90s, they blew the whole thing up and changed it because the culture of the day was asking different questions. And the culture of the day needed believers to start in a different place when it comes to sharing the word of God. So that, that Christian consensus then begins to change a little bit to where more and more people believe there's errors or there's errancy in the Bible. And in other words, they'll say, well, this is, yeah, it was written by men, so of course it has mistakes, there's things wrong in it. Uh, it might be a good book, but it's definitely not God's word. You can't trust it, you can't rely upon it. And in this vein, you found all of a sudden within churches, the church itself saying, we don't believe the Bible is without mistake. It has errors in it. We're still using it. It's still a good thing. But the, the errancy or the fact it being the pure, absolute word of God that is the standard in the ch many churches has even begun to fade away. And it's the important thing to realize that for the Bible to be anything, it has to be everything. Because if I can take and change it and say it's got mistakes and this isn't right and that's not right, all of a sudden I've changed who's in charge of the scriptures. I've decided what is true and not true. I've decided what applies to today and was really written so long ago that it doesn't apply to me today at all. Uh, as we do these kind of uh, analysis and look into the scriptures this way, there are many people, and you may have met them, that will come up to you and say, you know, the Bible is full of contradictions. A contradiction meaning if it's yes, it can't be no at the same time. And in this vein of saying the Bible is full of mistakes, there have been a lot of people who've come up with contradiction. This isn't, this, this is true, that's not true. And look at that, the Bible contradicts it here. It says these disciples came first to the tomb, and then it says this. So, so much so that Christianity kind of had to take a step back and say, let, let's just cool down a little bit, and has written several volumes, all of which are here and some in our church library, where we've taken and said, all these things that you say are in contradictions, culture, society, and even Christians who had doubts because it, it just got them doubting in their minds. Here are some books that have been written dealing with some 800 plus objections that culture has brought up to the Bible and say, wait a minute, that's not really a contradiction. It may look at it on the surface, but when you look at the language the Bible was written in, you look at the culture and the times, and many of these 
archaeology has brought uh, evidence to the fact that they're not contradictions. The Bible has been true. The Bible is right. Even when you read it as a modern person today and you look at it and say, well, that guy never was really a ruler of that area. Archaeology all of a sudden uncovers pieces that show, well, wait a minute, here's something that says that he was, even though for years it was doubted. So there's, there's a lot of literature out there. And if you ever find yourself in a place where you you're, have somebody who has sincere doubts and wants answers, there's places that we can go to to find how uh, uh, these questions or apparent contradictions can be uh, overcome. And it was said by Wayne Jackson, one need uh, show only the possibility of harmonization between two passages that appear in conflict in order to negate the force of an alleged discrepancy. So in all of these cases where people and skeptics have come against the scriptures, there are answers, there's archeology, span there's things that have come to show that the Bible truly is a reliable book. And it really has only been probably the past 200 years, 100 years so, where you would find a Christian that would stand up and say, I'm a Christian, but I believe the Bible's full of errors. That didn't used to happen in early Christianity. That's a modern day thing where people would say, yes, it's full of mistakes, but I'm a Christian. Because before, belief in the inerrancy of the Bible, the fact that it's true and right, it was synonymous with being a Christian because it was the foundation for it whatsoever. So not only have we lost the Christian consensus in that idea, we've also gone from what has been called post-Christianity and it's becoming more anti-Christian and in many ways does not tolerate a biblical worldview whatsoever. In fact, if you were to take a Bible worldview that comes from a scripture and line it up to what the world says today is true and right and how you're supposed to think, you're going to find disagreement almost every single point that comes along. One would be, what does it mean to be human? been so redefined today that you can kill a baby before it's born or kill a person before it's time for them to die. Because humanity to many is what do you contribute and what is your quality of life as determined by me. It's today a biblical worldview goes against the culture of what it means to be gendered. How do you feel this morning? Well, I guess you're a girl today. You don't feel it? Maybe you're a guy today. The redefining of what it means to be gendered. Take a biblical worldview, put it opposite. Or what does it mean to be moral? Today, morality is what makes me happy. As long as I'm happy, I'm moral. It's okay. Put that against a biblical worldview, it doesn't line up. Or even what does it mean for something to be true? You line the biblical model of absolute standards against the culture today, the biblical worldview doesn't line up. And you can find a bestseller almost that, that refutes or goes against Christianity on any one of these and many, many more that you could list. So as we embrace or live in our culture, we need to be very sure that in our foundation, we believe and understand and rest firmly on the word of God. That we are not taken away by the culture of our days. And these attitudes that are so anti-biblical somehow become ours. And the, the best safeguard against that is to be thoroughly rooted in the word of God, to know what it is, and to believe it with 100% certainty that it is the word of God. 
So we're going to spend a few minutes just talking about the nature of the Bible. If you've never seen a Greek text before, you've seen it now. The Bible's original manuscripts, specifically we're going to talk mostly about the New Testament today. The New Testament was written in Greek. There you have it right there. Looks a little different than what you have in your scriptures before you today as you take and read them. So between this week and next week, we want to kind of go through the reliability of the Bible and that as it was given in the original manuscripts, can they be trusted? How do we know that they just weren't written by people and that they've been preserved correctly? And then how did it get from here to your nightstand? How is it that you have a version of the Bible and why are there so many versions out there and can they, are they all equal? Are they different? And answer some of those questions so that we understand in, in a pretty firm way the Bible that we have before us today. So as we look at the nature of the Bible, one of the key words that's going to come up is inspiration. The scriptures say that the, it is an inspired document. And this definition here will serve our purposes today. God, the Holy Spirit, worked in a unique supernatural way so that the written words of Scripture, the Scripture writers, were also the words of God. The product of that inspiration, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So what the Bible claims about itself is that its writings are the very breath of God. They are what he wanted. This is the product that we have in these manuscripts written in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. God breathed into them his heart, the words that he wanted. And the process the Bible gives us a glimpse into is how in the world would a, a God who was unknowable break into humanity to become knowable through the writings of people. That, that seems awkward. It seems miraculous, and, and indeed it is. So the process, you can see here in 2 Peter chapter 1, it says, we have, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts, knowing this First of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is the doctrine in a, in a nutshell, in a Reader's Digest version, and I know younger people have no idea what a Reader's Digest even is, but it's that con condensed idea of inspiration, is that God, through the, his Holy Spirit, used the personalities, the, the writings of man, but guaranteed those words were what he wanted. It's not dictation, because if you read the Bible, there's poetry, there's all kinds of different styles and uniquenesses of writers, but he carried them along so that what was given was his word. The imagery here is of a sailboat driven by the wind. So God's Holy Spirit came along and guided the hearts of people, not ignoring who they were, but guaranteeing the end product would indeed be his words that he wanted without error. 
So, so that's the, the synopsis, I guess you could say, the summary, uh, quick story of inspiration and what it means. But there's a couple ramifications of that that come down. And the first of that would be inspiration extends to the original writings. Okay? My translation is a translation of the inspired word of God. Now, God speaks through and he, he through his Holy Spirit, communicates his truth to us, but there are some today that would pick a particular version of the Bible and say this is God's inspired word, as if God, or Apostle Paul, I should say, spoke in King James English. And this is the Bible that has been preserved for all time. And we're going to look at the translations and how they fit into this. But the original writings, as they were penned by the biblical author, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Second thing is it's, if you ever um, look at technical definitions of the Bible and inspiration, and I always do this like when I'm looking at a church to see where the church is coming from, I look for a couple key words in their statements about the Bible, and it tells me all kinds of things about them, whether they believe the scriptures are true and right or not. So these words that I'm going to give you now are the words that I look for when I see how people stand on the word of God. And one view of inspiration that, that's key, crucial, as you'll see in some definitions, we believe in the verbal inspiration of scriptures. And what that means is that every word and every word form, even the tenses of the language, were given by God and they mean something. That's why people will study Greek and they'll study other languages and they'll say, well, this is in this tense in the original. And that means something because that's how God gave it so that every word as given by God is important. And then the next word I look for is plenary. Now, these aren't Bible words like they're in the Scripture. They're words that have been given to help us get a definition together to understand the view of biblical inspiration. Plenary means equal to all parts. I used to think I had a... I grew up on the King James, too. So as I talk about that next week, and if I'm not totally thrilled all the time with it, you understand that I come from that tradition. That's what I grew up with. And if you had a good King James Bible, the, writ, the, the letters of Jesus were, they were read. And I used to look at them and like, whoa, they're more Bible than the other stuff because they're the words of Jesus. Well, in a true picture of inspiration, the inspiration of God extends to all the scripture equally. So what Paul said is as much the word of God than the record that we have of what Jesus said. All the parts of the Bible, not just the words, all of it is of equal weight, the entire word of God. Another word I always look for is that it's inerrant. This means that it's without mistake. There are no mistakes in the Bible. People come up with apparent contradictions. There's explanations. There's reasoning behind those. The Bible is without mistake. Another word I would look for in their explanation of inspiration is it's in fallible. In other words, it's without deception. There isn't any plot of men who got together and thought, yeah, we're going to dupe the world, and we're going to do it because we're going to agree, and we're going to make this thing happen and put it in scripture and, and somehow make a lot of money off of it or something. There's no deception in the word of God whatsoever. And then the final word I always look for is authoritative. The Bible is authoritative. The first and last word on reality. 
on sin, on the future, and you could put anything in there, that it is what dictates the way that I live, the way that culture should live, the way that a world should live. It is the authoritative word of God. So it sounds like a mouthful, and a lot of you probably don't get into those kind of things, but if somebody comes up to me and they're going to tell me that they believe that the Bible is the word of God, these are the kind of things I look for. Well, what do you mean by the word of God? Is it the verbal, plenary, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and there's probably some other words you could throw into there. Is that what you mean by the word of God? Because if you mean something else, then you really don't believe the truth of the scriptures and what the word of God truly is. So as we kind of put that up top of the overarching umbrella, a couple questions come up as far as the reliability of the New Testament, the, the, the scriptures that we have trans, uh, we translated our Bibles from. And in those manuscripts or those writings, how can I be sure that what was given and that they wrote was transmitted and has come to us authoritatively, correctly, and in a trustworthy, reliable manner. So if you have your notes, kind of look at that chart right now. We're going to look at that chart just for a minute. And we're going to compare the reliability of the Bible to, all, or to many of the other pieces of literature that come from antiquity. Because there's many other pieces of literature as old as the Bible, and in some cases, uh, you know, it might even be... Uh, contemporary with many of the Old Testament passages before the time of Christ, written before the New Testament. So if we're going to talk about the Bible being reliable, how does it stack up against all the other literature that's out there? And some people find it um, a little hard to understand on the surface that we do not possess any original manuscript of the Bible, the way Paul wrote it, his exact letter. We don't have it. But I'll say at the same time, we don't have the original manuscript of any piece of literature from antiquity. So what we do is look at, well, when was that supposedly written? And when it was written, what is the earliest copy that we have of it? Like, how much time gap was there between the writing and the earliest copy that we have? Because people today, they, they make their living by, by believing in and teaching about Plato, about Aristotle, and all of these other ancient works. And people really don't ever doubt their authenticity. They have confidence in them that they've been reliably transmitted throughout all of history. So we want to put the Bible kind of up against the same test that we would those other type things. So what you have here are, I just selected a few pieces of ancient literature that would fall into the same kind of category that a, the Bible might. And as you look at them and you look at the time gap, you see a gap of 1,300 years from the time it was written to the earliest copy that we still have today. You look at all the way down, you see a couple that um, like Homer's Iliad says 400 years. And that's even a little, little inaccurate because they only found a tiny fragment, fragment that was 400 years old. It's more like a thousand years between the time when the Iliad was supposedly to be written and the earliest copy we have. Does that seem like a long time to you? To have something accurately translated? 400 years, 900,000? That's a big time gap. As we look at the Bible, 
what kind of time gap is there between the writing of the scripture and the actual earliest copies that we've discovered so far. Now, it's interesting to find out when you get into these archeological discoveries, they're still working on a piece that could be the earliest um, uh, fragment of the Book of Mark that has ever been found. It was found in 1903, and they still haven't weighed in the final word on it because there's politics and releasing it to study and issues. So this is a slow-moving science. But as of what we know to be true today, when it comes to the New Testament, there's fragments that we have that date to 114. We have entire books in the AD 200, most of the New Testament from 250, and the whole complete New Testament by 325. That's what we know and has been discovered so far today. So as you look at the gaps, the earliest we have, about 50 plus years from the time it was written to the earliest manuscripts that we still have today. If you look at the entire books of the Bible that came together, not just as a fragment, it's about 100 years. And for most of the New Testament, from the time it was written to the earliest manuscript that's in existence, it's about 150 years. 225 for the whole Bible itself, finding an intact, complete Bible. That, in the world of manuscripts, is impressive. There is no other piece of literature that has the reliability that the Bible has. And I'm not saying that because I'm a pastor and I'm a Christian. You could go to any place that studies ancient literature. And if they're on it, they'll say, yeah, you have more reliability behind your copy of the Bible than any of these other places do whatsoever. That doesn't prove that it's the word of God, but it sure gives us a reliable understanding that this book with these claims that are in it, have been transmitted reliably, in fact, more reliable than any other piece of antique, antiquity literature that we would have. John Warwick Montgomery was um, giving a, a debate one time at the University of British Columbia. And his point was, if you doubt the Bible and you throw the Bible away as unreliable, you have to throw away all of ancient literature. Because if, if, if the Bible's not reliable with its track record, then nothing that we know from ancient history is reliable. So the guy he was debating um, kind of gave up, and he says, all right, I'll throw out my knowledge of the whole classical world, to which the chairman of the classical department stood up and screamed out, good Lord, Avram, not that. You know, there's this idea out there that all of these other pieces of literature, they're true, they're reliable, and no one ever challenges them, but they challenge the Bible because the Bible challenges us. It tells us things that people necessarily don't want to hear. So to summarize the idea of the reliability of scriptures, there's thousands more New Testament Greek manuscripts than any other writings of antiquity that back up the writings that they represent. It's 99.5% textually pure, the critics say. They say, well, why 99.5%? I thought you're telling me this is 100% the word of God. It's not full of mistakes. It's not full of errors. There's things called variants in these manuscripts, which means you could have a thousand manuscripts of one portion of the book of John, say, and one of them has one word capitalized 
that the other 999 don't. That's considered a thousand variants because the one has something slightly different. It says the same thing, but it has a capitalization or there could be a punctuation type difference. So when we say it's 99.5% uh, pure, it means in all these texts, when you put them together, there's 0.5% that contain some kind of variant from the other. There's over 19,000 copies or translations in these Syriac, Latin, Coptic, and Aramaic languages that they found. This is besides the manuscripts themselves. There's 19,000 translation versions that have been found out there. A support base of over 24,000 manuscripts behind the Bible that we have today. That's impressive. That gives us cause to trust and believe that what was given way back then, 2,000 years ago, has been preserved and is available for us today. Aside from all of that, if all 24,000 manuscripts were burned up today, Bruce Metzger, one of the best New Testament um, experts in the world today, he said, besides all the textual evidence derived from the New Testament Greek manuscripts and from early versions, and he talks and explains what they were, if all of those basically had disappeared today, you could take quotations that were included in the commentaries, sermons, and treatises written by the early church fathers. You could take those, indeed they're so extensive, these citations that if all other sources of our knowledge of the New Testament were destroyed, they would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of the entire New Testament. So these are the church fathers who were one generation after Jesus. We have their writings. And if you were to take their sermons and what they wrote, there's enough scripture in them that you could take out of them and come up with the whole Bible, even if every manuscript were completely gone and it had disappeared from us. The Bible is a reliable record as far as history is concerned. So we want to just take that as we close to take it to the next step. It's reliable history. So therefore, I must evaluate its claims. I must look at what the Bible says, and then I have to make a decision. Will I accept what has been reliably given to us through history? Will I accept it and be able to change my life? The Bible is a, a record, and the one it speaks of claimed to be equal with God and partner in creation with the Godhead, yet fully human, the claim of Jesus. Jesus is one who claimed that he came to become the one and only way and door to the kingdom of heaven. It contains claims of the one who said that he was the one who died in pursuit of the human heart and that he would rise again on the third day. We have a Bible that boasts of an empty tomb and an ascended Savior. A Bible that promises the return of this Jesus to usher in the kingdom for those who by faith have repented of themselves, taken up their crosses, and followed him. Reliable history with the claims of God throughout it. Those claims require a decision. And for someone to come to the scriptures and just turn and walk away and say, I'll decide later, that's a decision. We either embrace the claims of scripture by faith or we turn our back in disbelief.
C.S. Lewis once said this about the claims of Scripture. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man that says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The Bible is a reliable record of a man named Jesus Christ. His claims are there for us to decide on. And if you're here this morning and your heart has been skeptical to some point, you've not been really sure, you have to come face to face with this account of history of a man who lived, died, and rose again. And, and, and the scripture's claims about our own sinfulness, our own um, path to come back to that God is outlined in its pages. For those of us, though, that have made that decision, who have turned and said, yes, I do believe the claims contained in that scripture. A couple things as we close. For those of us with our faith in the scriptures, the Bible is life. The Bible is life. The scriptures say, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow, and a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible is life. I don't know how many of you and to what degree of tragedy you may have experienced in your life. Some of us have been at a place where it's been so hard, we couldn't even get up off the ground. The tears have flowed, and we've been totally devastated in this life. And I'll bet you most of us could give testimony to the fact that the word of God, through his scriptures, through the other people living it, has picked us up. You see, the Bible has a way of getting down inside of us, of encouraging us. When I don't want to go on, the pages of Scripture get into my heart. They come in and pick me up. They connect the dots that don't make sense. Those things that, that just seem so difficult in my life, I can come away from the Scriptures with life, with a feeling that there's, there's blood flowing in my bones again, that, that in my veins, I, that, that I can go on, that there is hope. It's the life that comes through the scriptures and the scriptures alone. Peter says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. When you accept the claims of scripture, you feel life. When you go through a dark place and the Bible gets into your heart and mind, you feel life. You feel the reality of God in the pages of his word. And finally, not just life, it is light. We've read these verses before in Matthew 13. 
this parable is being spoken. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the, <clears throat> the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And usually when we read that verse, we pray for somebody, then we say, please don't let that seed be snatched away. But I want to focus on the word understanding it. Because later on in that parable, we read these words. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case 100 and another 60 and another 30. You see, the understanding of the word of God, it gives life, but it also gives light. Those that let the Bible get into their heart and change them have a successful, fruitful life. If your heart's in a dark place, if your heart is in an addicted place, maybe your heart's just indifferent when you understand the word of God and it gets into your heart, it changes you, remakes you, and gives you productivity, success, joy, peace, and all the things you could say that are part of a hundredfold, 60 and 30-fold. Understanding the scriptures, letting them into your heart, embracing them by faith is what makes life worthwhile. It makes it make sense. It gives it significance. When I turn my back on the scriptures, it all falls apart. And I'm roadkill on the side because it's been snatched away. It's one thing to intellectually admire the Bible and say, boy, that's a good book. It's another thing to have it become what the scriptures use the term, the engrafted word of God. When you graft something, you kind of cut it, stick something in, and it becomes part, and it's one new thing. The Bible calls itself the engrafted word that is able to save your soul. Is your relationship to the Bible like that? If not, it can be. The spiritual discipline of study allows God to engraft the living word into your heart so that even at your darkest point, the scriptures give life and light. Father, I thank you for the word, the living word, the written word, all of those things that you've given us through your Holy Spirit to be able to pick us up, to guide us in this life. Lord, in a world that is so um, contrary to the Bible, to the claims of Scripture, help us to be people whose firm foundation is your living word. Help us to be people who, by faith, let that word live in us. In Jesus' name, amen.